all of the commodities, whether it's commodities for batteries or or electric cables, which is obviously you know copper and lithium and, and cobalt, or whether it's uh, iron ore to go into steel, you know, so you can build your wind turbines or aluminium, they're all going to be needed for this transition. So, you know, the challenge for us is to deliver what's needed to support the transition. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is Dan Barclay, CEO of BMO Capital Markets, and I'm speaking with Tom Butler, CEO of the International Council of Mining and Metals. Tom, it's nice to be here with you for our second annual chat from the Global Metals and Mining Conference. Why don't we begin with you telling our listeners who may not know about ICMM and what it does. Thank you, Dan, and uh, thank you so much for having me back. And I'm only sorry that I'm not in Miami with you. Uh, This is uh, being done virtually. Hopefully uh, next year you'll be able to go back to a physical meeting. So uh, for those who aren't aware of ICMM, we're a membership organization. The organization is dedicated to a safe, fair and sustainable mining and metals industry and has 27 company members, soon to be 28, and then uh, roughly 35 association members. And the two two or three key distinguishing features about ICMM are firstly the member commitments. So the members make a series of commitments in terms of how they will operate, which we call the mining principles. There are 10 overarching principles with uh, underlying them 38 requirements or performance expectations, uh, nearly all of which are at site level and are very granular. And then in addition, another eight position statements on um, which we've developed as com- member commitments in response to critical challenges. So that's the first feature. The second feature is that ICMM is CEO-led. So the council is essentially acts like my board. There are 27 CEOs at the table when we meet. And uh, I think that sends a very strong signal both internally and externally that uh, the CEOs are serious about the organization and the commitments they make and the objectives. And then the third uh, key feature about ICMM is the admission process, which is very rigorous. So admission to new companies is is scrutinized by an independent panel of experts, three experts, uh, one from each discipline, governance, environmental and social. And they kick the tires quite hard and uh, assess whether a a company is uh, close to being able to meet the ICMM commitments if they're not already meeting them and uh, will only recommend admission on the basis of an agreed action plan. I think it's uh, it's great and unique what ICMM does. We're uh, obviously got a big topic in this year's conferences around ESG, and uh, we had you open up at one of our plenaries talking about the E of ESG and mining. Um, you highlighted climate change, water stewardship, and biodiversity as areas where mining companies are taking determined steps to make a difference in environmental sustainability. Can you speak a little bit more about these? Is one of the areas more important than the others, or do they, in your mind, do they seem to have equal weighting? I think they're all important for for different reasons, Dan. Obviously, uh, climate change is the burning platform at the global level. Uh, So this is a concern for all sectors. In the case of mining and metals, we account for a significant portion of the overall emissions worldwide. So it's uh, something that uh, 
we very much need to take care of and there's a lot of attention being focused on us and the point that i made on climate change uh, when i was speaking yesterday is that you know if you looked at the issue maybe even 10 years ago there was still a debate going around the sector as to whether we even accepted that it was uh, man-made and and today you see as a result of huge uh, stakeholder pressure and also pricing pressure due to imposition of carbon pricing in a number of jurisdictions a number of very significant commitments being made and uh, companies becoming aligned on those commitments and and showing that uh, you know we're all committed to putting together and making progress biodiversity is is also a burning platform but to some extent there's less pre- pressure on the industry because our footprint is so much smaller than for example uh, agribusiness so you know the mining industry Overall, in aggregate, accounts for less than 1% of uh, the land footprint. And so we do need to take some very serious commitments, and we have made some very significant commitments on this topic. But it's something that we can manage more easily and that, that hopefully will be something that we can get ourselves around more easily than the climate change. And then finally, water tends to be very much an operational issue. So very context-specific, very mine-specific in some cases, you've got way too much water to, to deal with. In other cases, not enough. Again, we've evolved over time on this issue. It used to be a question of accessing water and uh, having uh, access to user rights, whereas today we think about it much more holistically. We have a position statement, a water stewardship position statement, which essentially outlines a member commitment to take a what we call a catchment-based approach to how water is used and managed. And that means considering the needs of all other users in the catchment basin and doing everything we can to integrate a mine and the, and the use of water by the mine into that catchment basin and, uh, and, and not just sort of consider that, that we should take priority, for example. And water is important because it's not just society's perceptions about how we use water, but also in many parts of the world, it's actually you know, more difficult to get hold of than, than the, the minerals that we're mining. Toward the end of your comments... You also noted how much more needs to be done by the companies in this space on these topics. Do you think they're up to the space and do you think they're making the appropriate amount of progress today? Well, I think we still have some progress to make on climate change, uh, especially uh, we set uh, some very ambitious targets. A number of members have set intermediate targets and then net zero targets uh, in 2040, 2050. As I said, I think it's about committing and aligning their teams around those targets and it's difficult to say how we're going to get there today. You know, this is very much like the moonshot. Uh, when Kennedy announced that he was going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, he didn't really know how he was going to do that. You always start this kind of process by setting the goal and putting down some 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 aspirations. And uh, it's interesting, two, two years ago, we kicked off our own initiative on which is related to climate change, which is this, uh, what we call the Innovation for Cleaner, Safer Vehicles, which is an initiative re- related to uh, to trucks and and mobile equipment, and it's got three streams. And one of the streams is is greenhouse gas, and and having available technology by 2040. That was two years ago, and we were worried about putting a date on it two years ago, and how could we be certain that we that we'd get there? But just given the technical progress that that I've seen around the world, uh, I'm, I'm beginning to feel more and more confident that we'll be able to get there well before 2040. And then the other thing to say is, of course, uh, scope three, which is the biggest challenge. This is the elephant in the room. This requires working with the, the, the value chain, working with um, the buyers. Some of the commodities produced by ICMM's members go into processes that uh, produce a lot of CO2, uh, most notably, for example, steel. 
We are already seeing technologies which, although they're not commercially viable today, are not that far off. So, for example, hydrogen reduction in steel, people are saying, well, it's 30, 30 to 40% off being commercial. And uh, with scale and with innovation, it's becoming, well, for me, I'm becoming more and more confident that uh, we'll be able to you know, whittle away that 30%. And you're seeing announcements all the time, which uh, which indicate that other people have got that kind of confidence. Uh, for example, earlier this week, Volvo announced that uh, they, they will only manufacture electric cars by 2030. And uh, that maybe two, even two years ago would have been inconceivable. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen an enormous amount of development uh, over the last 12, 18 months in terms of thought process, experimentation, and now success. One of the other topics that I think we're trying to, to layer in uh, through the conference this week is around ESNG. And uh, obviously, the progress we've got and the focus has been mainly on environmental. How do you think about the social and the governance and how integrated they are uh, when we think about sustainability? Yeah, I think there's. I think that there's a lot of interconnection between ES and G. And you know, to give you a specific example, social issues often depend on how environmental issues are dealt with. So you know, perceptions about water use, perceptions about dust management, perceptions about rehabilitation of a tailings facility, or for, or for that matter, managing a tailings facility safely. And so you know, there's automatically an interconnection between the the social issues that you have to deal with and how well you're managing the environmental issues. And then they, they both feed into to governance because uh, governance is, is there to, to make sure that you've got the right structures in place to, to oversee how you manage the environmental and social issues and that you're accountable for them and that you're transparent and, and that you're not dealing with them in isolation. And the tailing standard, which we launched in October, which I was talking about earlier on today on, on one of your panels, is is another good example of that because it's very integrated. So it integrates environmental, social, technical considerations, and and also has a strong governance component. And it's not a co- coincidence, by the way, that that standard was developed by a multidisciplinary group, seven experts with all sorts of different disciplines who put it together. And I think that's the direction of travel. We have to be more and more integrated. One of the things that we're thinking quite hard about is social performance and and how to integrate that better into the management structures in companies and in operations. I'm with you on this, Tom, that the, it's a holistic discussion on ESG, and I'm sure you've seen some of the work that I put out uh, around uh, connecting the dots on these. I've often remarked around the pandemic as an accelerative change in business and in life. And how do you think the pandemic's impacted the mining and the ESG narrative? You mentioned technology and automation in your remarks. Do you think we'll see more radical change in the way mines and production processes are fundamentally designed? Yeah, it was interesting. When the pandemic started, there was a lot of commentary about, you know, which way is everyone going to jump? Are they just going to, now that, now that they're under real pressure, are they just going to forget ESG or, or you know, is, is it going to make everyone take it more seriously? And it was, it was pretty clear very soon that the pandemic highlighted uh, inequality and, and vulnerability and, and it was pretty clear which way to, you, you had to go. There was a very strong moral imperative. And I think the industry's response was was very robust on that score. We focused on safety. We focused on supporting surrounding communities. We deployed our crisis management uh, experience and skills and, and logistics capability and, and, and put a pretty strong response out there. So I think in terms of in terms of the response, it actually it, you know, actually strengthened our ESG narrative and, and and the companies that had the best practices going into the pandemic were also the ones who were managed who who were able to manage surrounding social issues um, 
the best because they had the best networks with their surrounding communities. I think I think it's you know in terms of what's it going to accelerate. It's obviously accelerated remote work that goes all the way down from CEOs. I mean this conference is remote. Um, I think a, a number of uh, the CEOs in in ICMM's council have have realised that they can work in a completely different different way. I think everyone's realised they can do things differently, and I don't think we'll be going back to to you know the way it was before. People are, are, are going to be looking for hybrid approaches. In terms of technology, it's accelerated the use of things like drones. People are people are using iPads to do due diligence, which previously they would have insisted on travelling halfway halfway around the world to to do. Now they they've got someone on the on the ground pointing an iPad at different things and and, and sort of giving them virtual tours. And there are, there are some very exciting developments in other sectors which i think uh, will find the, their way into our sector you know to give you one example people these days are operating on people using special surgery glasses from different continents well you could do the same thing to maintain a vehicle if you've got if you need some specialist engineer it doesn't even have to be on the same continent yeah and i think uh, you highlighted earlier around the uh, the idea of more greenhouse gas friendly trucking and i think one of the hallmarks of the mining industry is this process of continuous innovation and it's usually a science-based discipline and the amount of change that the industry can actually create itself and once it starts get confident and then innovate 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 is a, is a great hallmark to the industry yeah and I, let me let me just make a, a one more point on that which i you know i think it's i think you're right and i think we don't talk enough about it and i you know, i've seen some incredible innovation with the members uh, you know one of one of the things that that i would never have dreamt of but which really impressed me was a very simple thing that i saw on in the Pilbara on the Rio Tinto uh, railway, where they have a microphone listening to um, the train every time it goes past, and it, it actually knows which wheel it's listening to. And so, you know, this sort of two mile train goes past every day or two, and it, it, it identifies each wheel and listens to it. And it, it can detect before it fails that it's about to fail. So you can actually, you know, swap the axle out before you, you know, have a derailment or a train failing on the, on the track. And, and those kind of small innovations are are so important and, and so impressive and, and we're doing them all the time. And it does point to the you know sort of a common theme in the industry, which is that is that we are upskilling. There will be uh, more automation, there'll be less need for more straightforward skills that are required in, in drilling, blasting and, and truck driving and, and there'll be more need for computing and data analytics. And about two thirds of the engineers needed today already are, are, are the sort of the soft engineers, the software type IT type engineers, and that's a that's an issue for it, the industry which we have to think about because it means that the proposition for host countries, especially in developing countries, is harder to make because uh, often the host countries don't have these kind of skills, and so we need to think very carefully about how to help surrounding communities and and host countries, especially in developing uh, countries, uh, upskill so that they're able to still capture the benefits even with a highly automated mine and, and and we've got an initiative um, which we're kicking off on that which we're calling the skills initiative which is essentially working with all sorts of partners both at national but but global level to try to anticipate those impacts well let's use this theme and go crystal ball time what's your vision on the future of mines and what kind of time frame do you think that could be achieved in well there's all sorts of different things i can think about so we've already got um all electric underground mines today so can we uh, can we imagine an unmanned surface only underground mine with nobody having to go down at all i think probably yes i've seen i've seen mines for example i was in grassberg 2 years ago where the the operators were all driving the 
um, the trucks and the diggers virtually from the surface. So can you get everyone else out of the mine and thereby improve safety? Uh, I think that's perhaps around the corner in some parts of the world. People are working on waterless mines. We've talked already about water in, in very scarce areas that, that can save you a lot of cost, but also uh, helps with uh, safety on tailings. Uh, people are talking about um, completely different techniques for mining, so solution mining. I think a, a key thing is is um, better management of waste, so recycling waste or finding other value chains for, for waste. Perhaps turning tailings into bricks could be something. And uh, perhaps eliminating tailings altogether, uh, which is probably a little bit further off, but uh, certainly within within my lifetime, and, and I'm already getting quite old, Dan. And then, <laughs> and then I think in gold, you know, one of the interesting things is um, whether we can do away with cyanide. Uh, the university is already researching alternative solvents, um, and if we can find an effective solvent that is um, cyanide free and which doesn't harm the uh, environment, and that's what they're working on, then I think that would make a huge difference also to artisanal mining. You know, as as, as I'm sure you know, artisanal miners use either cyanide. Or uh, mercury is very damaging for the environment, and so uh, if we can find some kind of solvent which is neutral in terms of impact to the environment, then you know the the informal sector will be impacted very positively, and we we can't forget that sector because there are so many millions who are employed by it. One hundred percent agreed. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit. A question for you: Are mining and sustainability and profitability compatible or mutually exclusive? Well, I think profitability is a is a required condition. So if it's not profitable, then it's not sustainable. So assuming that you've got something that's that's profitable, then I think uh, the the challenge is: can you meet society's expectations and 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 of course regulations? And society's expectations are continually being ramped up. And in- increasingly, sustainability means going beyond the pure uh, regulatory requirements. So um, being able to demonstrate that you're uh, producing responsibly, going beyond the regulations, and and showing that you've got a positive impact and I think if you don't do this and and you can't show that you're doing it, then you start to lose access to capital, you start to lose access to projects, and you start to lose access to markets. And we've seen so much interest from governments. We've so seen seen so much interest from uh, end consumers. You know whether it's people buying gold or whether it's um, the car manufacturers buying their their com- their commodities to make their cars. This is increasingly a consideration. If you lose access to those things, then obviously you're not profitable. And then finally, I think the, the important point that I'd make is that if you don't, uh, if you can't show that you're producing responsibly and having positive impact, you lose your people. And you and I, we discussed this last year. Actually, I remember. You know, it's increasingly important if you want to attract talent that you can show that you're operating with purpose and that you're having positive impact. And and this industry is in competition with. Silicon Valley, for example, I, I, I mentioned IT and software engineers. And if you want to attract those kind of people, um, a, a lot of them are motivated by, by purpose as well. So we need to develop the narrative and also show that we, we're actually doing it. Yeah, and I think we've, uh, we at BMO are working through uh, a framework around the stakeholder analysis on this. And you often start off when you think about sustainability as the negative in the risk management piece. You then think about where you get to on the employee side, which is a, an important stakeholder. And then I actually get to opportunity, which is what you're seeing with returns in the marketplace. The companies that are more ESG focused are getting better returns, lower yeah. cost capital, access to capital. And you know, we at BMO are actually very focused on the opportunity set from ESG. And so as you innovate, as you create new, as you do new things, 
right? It's change that creates uh, upside. So you and I are completely aligned on that. And 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 by the way, that's, this is something that I say at every opportunity, which is that a lot of ICMM's members feel that they're judged by you know the sustainalytics uh, agencies of the world, judged on judged on risk management criteria. But but really, what um, is much harder to do, and which is which is which is which is more important, is that you are able to show that your social impact and the positive impact that you can have. So the opportunities that you're talking about, um, and because that's part of risk management, it's just it's just sort of positive risk management as opposed to mitigating for negative risks. You use the example you used earlier on trucking. Trucking is actually better on automated basis, safety, and other things, but it's actually coming at a lower cost, right? And so it's actually enhancing the profitability of the operation by doing it something more sustainably. Yeah. Just to finish on the example I gave, um, I was giving about Grassberg, there's, there's also had a diversity component because um, it's still illegal, incredibly, in, in Indonesia um, to send women underground. So... You know the the room full of people driving trucks who I saw at the mine in Grasberg who were all on the surface were were not breaking the law, and by introducing this these um, virtual truck drivers, they were actually able to get women into the workforce, which was great. Wow, that's that's a great development. Let's turn back to ICMM for a second. You recently published a series of equivalency benchmarks that compare the ICMM mining principles to those published by other global organizations. Why did you think that necessary? Well, there are a number of commodity-specific initiatives um, in the market, and they are meeting the responsible purchase sort of requirements of, of their buyers. And they're all slightly different because of the, you know, the issues related to gold, for example, are different to the issues related to, to copper. And our mining principles apply to our members, and our members uh, produce all sorts of different commodities. And so we were, uh, you know, the, the, the main objective was to simplify for the purchasers, people who are concerned about uh, purchasing responsibility, responsibly, uh, to introduce some efficiency for them and to introduce some transparency in terms of how these different initiatives um, map across to each, each other. And, you know, the sort of the subsidiary objective is we're trying to, uh, by introducing um, this equivalency framework linked to our mining principles, which are obviously applied uh, globally, is to make it uh, simpler for investors and for capital so that we can actually grow the pool of capital uh, who, which is willing to invest in the sector. So if people can, if people can uh, start to understand just how we operate responsibly and, and you know, what these principles look like and how they map across to other ones that they may have seen, hopefully we'll be able to, to grow the number of people who are willing to uh, consider putting money into the sector. Yeah, and I think you're. Uh, th- this is a good a good frame to to my concept on what I call the broken narrative, which is the actual ESG track record of the mining companies is actually in lots of cases spectacular, and yet they don't get the credit for it. It's not and it's misunderstood. It leads me to a good conversation actually on uh, mining and the benefit to one of the key stakeholders, which is the host host countries. I think you've been recently trying to publish and build uh, the fact set around this concept of what we add to the host country. Uh, or the mining industry does, um, and you published uh, a couple of reports on that. Yeah, sure. So we've got there's one um, index which we're producing now for a few years called the Mining Contribution Index, the MCI, and we we issued uh, the fifth edition last December. And the aim, well, uh, first of all, just to say that the countries are uh, indexed on a range of parameters, but the most important parameter is the percentage of exports which are related to mining. So how much of your country's GDP are related to, to mining activity. 
the aim is to profile the countries who are the most uh, dependent on mining and thereby highlight the fact that there there are a good number of countries who are very much dependent on mining. So if you look at the, the top 15 countries in the index, first of all, they're all developing countries and they all have more than 40% of their exports dependent on mining. And they have actually very little else going for them. They're totally dependent and it's critical for them to get their mining sector right and to use those assets that they have to develop themselves. And so this is really our way of saying, look, you know, there, there are some countries for whom there's no alternative and they need as much support as they can get from the international community in terms of institutional building, uh, support from multilateral banks, support in terms of uh, strengthening how they manage their title, and also uh, support in terms of what they do with the, the cash flow that they receive from the operations so that they can help themselves develop and diversify. And then the other report is... Um, is tax where we uh, we aggregate across all the membership and, and and we've started to regularly produce a summary of taxes paid. So the the most recent report came out in December, covering the period 2013 to 2019. Uh, the total tax paid by the membership across the board was uh, 97 billion dollars in that period, with another 57 billion in royalty. So big numbers. And you know the the most interesting thing for me, apart from the fact that it's a very big number was that when the industry goes through a downturn, because of the, the balance between taxes and, and royalties, the host countries were still receiving very significant numbers. So we had a downturn in 2016, and even in the downturn, $5.5 billion of royalties were paid to host countries. So they still, you know, they've got this balance where even if dividends are not being paid, the, the countries are still receiving some income. And of course, the, 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 the narrative around this is the tax goes to infrastructure, healthcare, education and, and ultimately diversification and getting that right is and, and and spending the money wisely is dependent on having good governance which is why icmm supports the extractives industry transparency initiative eiti because that's all about disclosing what you what you pay for the companies just disclosing what you receive if you're a country and um and through that transparency trying to in, improve good governance and making sure that it's spent wisely uh, I think those are great ways to expand the narrative on contribution from the mining industry. I think the last one, uh, you know, as we expand the narrative, is the future of metals in a low-carbon world. And, you know, how does an EV car get built? And BMO's done a bunch of work since then trying to be a thought leader around the impact of mining on a lower-carbon future. How do you feel about uh, that story? How do you feel about the narrative uh, around the transition to a low-carbon economy and how are you feeling? Uh, I think both of you and I are optimistic about the future, it sounds like, and uh, the progress around ESG. On the transition, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and I, I don't think there's any dispute. All of the commodities, whether it's, whether it's commodities for batteries or, or electric cables, which is obviously you know, copper and lithium and, and cobalt, or whether it's uh, iron ore to go into steel, you know, so you can build your wind turbines or aluminium, they're all going to be needed for this transition. So you know the challenge for us is uh, is to is to deliver what's needed to support the transition and to do it as responsibly as possible and i think there's you know i am optimistic because i think there's great convergence which we haven't seen before you know esg is on the lips of all investors today and 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 that really only took off 2 years ago perhaps i think uh, end consumers were thinking about it a little bit earlier and some of the responsible frameworks that we've produced were driven by end consumers, but are now being adopted uh, and or looked at carefully by investors as well. And of course, that was driven by climate change. 
but it's also being taken up for addressing such issues as uh, social performance and uh, and human rights in the supply chain. And I think because we've got this convergence, I'm I'm optimistic about being able to get it there. To get there, we do have to get it right. We've seen some groundbreaking commitments on on climate change, and as I said, it's it's led to alignment. And I think I think when everyone's aligned, when it, when it, when a CEO is starting to set KPIs on meeting the targets that have been announced, then I think you start to see major change. And I think that's a one way street. I don't think there's any return. Everyone knows that this is this is critical for us as a society and it's going to be critical if you want to access capital. So yes, I am optimistic and I think the next decade is going to be very exciting for this industry. Well, Tom, let me say thank you. Uh, once again, uh, I've really enjoyed our podcast. I think we've really brought to light, I think in, uh, in an interesting way, the progress made in the last 12 months. I wanted to thank you and ICMM because you guys are taking a leadership position on sustainability. Our industry titans, if I can call them that, I believe are true believers and are really into this. Uh, why we should do it is for the right reason. Whereas I would have said with you 12 months, 24 months ago, it felt like people were being dragged in. And today, I think not only that, they're trying to be leaders in embracing. And so uh, I think you really brought that to life today. Thank you again. Thanks for joining us at the conference. We really appreciate your contributions. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having me and, and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.